Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello, friends. Welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We're really glad that you have chosen to spend a little bit of time with us. I'm Don Payne, your host, and we have a very interesting guest to interact with this week. Uh, Someone who uh, kind of reassures me that God exists and that God is good when when I observe apparently unrelated subjects or unrelated fields of study come together in ways that show how they actually are connected at a deep level. Because that displays for me how life in this created order actually has order and pattern to it, has connections to it. It means something. Uh, This past fall, we were privileged to have a new colleague join our counseling faculty, and her background is a delightful example of that type of patterning, that integration. Uh, The the fact, as Frank Gabeline put it years ago, that all truth is God's truth. So our guest is uh, Dr. Michelle Temple. Uh, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Don. It's a pleasure to to join you today. We're we're really glad you could. Dr. Temple holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting from Ithaca College. She holds a Master of Science in Rehabilitation Counseling from Georgia State University, uh, a doctorate in Education in Professional Counseling and Supervision from the University of West Georgia, and a Ph.D. in Counselor Education and Supervision from Regent University. Uh, So this is Dr. Dr. uh, Michelle Temple. (laughs) Uh, two things that I find fascinating about Michelle's background. Um, first, she has worked uh, in the area of trauma, restoration, and transformation from a, a resilience perspective. And I'm going to ask her to say a little bit more about what that is as we get underway. And she's done so cross-culturally I, I, in Ukraine, I think. Is that correct? Yes, yes, for sure. I'm sorry, I got really enthusiastic just then. But yes, with um, in Ukraine through what's called a postgraduate institute um, of counseling and psychology. Okay, okay, we want to hear more about that. Um, the second thing that really fascinates me about Michelle and her work is that, she, um, and this goes back to the integration and the patterning that I mentioned a moment ago. She's brought her act, her background in acting and theater together with her therapeutic work. Uh, and has some very interesting experiences and insights coming from that uh, we, that we want to explore. M- Michelle, tell us first a little bit about your background in general and then something about your, your counseling background uh, in particular. Sure. So to, I think the easiest way to start is that, yes, um, I started off in in the field of acting, way back in high school i stumbled upon acting and writing in middle school um, and i found that it was a, a great way for me to engage with people in the world that um, allowed me to to thrive and so um, i've done a variety of theater and i would say this part is kind of funny i really enjoy classics so Greek theater and Shakespeare were the areas where I seemed to shine the most. Um, so, so were you into the uh, the Greek tragedies where everybody kind of dies in the end? Who's that? Agamemnon, <laughs> Medea, 
Those those were my areas of acting expertise, and I often was cast in those roles. So. Oh my, okay. So you got yeah. to die a lot on stage, then, right? I was pretty good at dying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. So, uh, and I actually went to a performing arts a high school um, when it opened in a small town in Florida called Lakeland. So. And so I've been in counseling. So the transition really quick from theater to counseling was while I was teaching theater, um, after I finished actually a master's in theater education at Emerson. I was oh, teaching. just add that to the list of degrees. I, did, I didn't know about that one. That's okay. Okay. I was, I was teaching at a middle school um, and students with disabilities were coming to my class and Apparently, they were thriving because I would have other teachers ask me what I was doing in there because students were eager to come to my classes. They always seemed to um, do well, and when they were when they left, they were well behaved, and I never complained about them. And and so my transition to counseling really was about me being curious about what I was even doing because I didn't know. Um, uh, you were being effective with him, but didn't know why. Well, yes, I thought I was just teaching. And so my uh, I, uh. my transitioning transition to counseling was really seeking some insight about what I was apparently doing intuitively that I wanted to do more intentionally. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, and that's how I moved into rehabilitation counseling, which is working with people with disabilities to help them achieve their personal and professional goals. And that's how I ended up at Georgia State earning a master's in rehabilitation counseling. Okay, okay. Have you, along the way, continued to utilize uh, your acting and theater background in counseling, even since you kind of made the formal switch? I have, and, and I'll say I've done that in the regard on how theater and acting is constructed and really about how um, theater allows us to imagine. Um, okay. And, yeah, and create life through story. And so often in my counseling, um, I, I spend time with people and how they've lived in the past, how they live in the present, and how they can imagine um, what their future might look like. Um, and really helping them create a storyline for themselves and helping them also create courage uh, to move toward that, that storyline that they've, they've imagined. Um, and that looks like so many different things throughout the therapeutic relationship, but that's, that's really how I think I've done it the most is, is helping people think about how they've told how they tell their story, their story of their life. Yeah, this, this really captivates me because, and it's kind of ironic, because just this morning, literally this morning that you know, they were recording this, I was listening to uh, another podcast, and the guest was, was talking about the, the narrative shape of, of the scriptures, the, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he used the illustration of... Um, how so so many uh, people in modern Western culture struggle with identity, trying to find out who they are, 
and it's because they don't have a narrative or a story that um, gives them a framework for their life. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he illustrated from the, the Jewish people, actually, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, the, the overall uh, Jewish population worldwide is relatively small compared to the overall world population. Mm -hmm. But he, he mentioned that uh, in, in many instances, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish individuals, uh, whether they are practicing Orthodox Jews or atheists, Mm -hmm. uh, they seem rarely to have the kind of um, personal questioning and struggles that you see outside the Jewish community because they are born into a story. They are oh, born into so a narrative. Powerful. They know who they are. That is so powerful because even in the work of theater and in counseling, the sense of identity and belonging um, are fundamental to, if I use the, that term you mentioned earlier, yeah. to resilience and well-being. Um, and praise God that we have the opportunity to have our identity in Christ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and yet that um, yeah. that that notion of uh, the story, even of the scriptures, mm -hmm. is or or of the scriptures as a narrative, a defining true narrative in which we can locate our lives and find our lives. That that seems in many Christian communities to be pretty underdeveloped. Uh, and and so we you know we have lots and lots of people who are still trying to figure out who they are, trying to find themselves. Mm -hmm. Which um, this this guest I was listening to on another podcast this morning said that is a pretty uniquely modern phenomenon. Um, uh, you know, it's only what four or five hundred years old since mm -hmm. um, since Western culture takes this turn toward focus on the individual as the defining reality, the bottom line reality for life. Um, and when, when everything is starts and stops with the individual, then you have to create your own story. You have to define yourself. You have to find yourself. And it, had, it hadn't occurred to me in quite those vivid, in quite, I guess, those vivid ways, how, mm -hmm. how uniquely uh, modern that is, this struggle to find oneself, to, de to define oneself for, for lack of being born into a clear story. Yeah. And even when you when I think about that and this idea of how people heal and grow, part of that, what I've noticed is that of that journey is how they've situated their individual narrative in the larger narrative of society, mm -hmm. whether it's family, whether it's community, whether it's um, a larger group of people. Um, it could be professional identity, it could be faith-based identity, but it's usually something outside of themselves, yeah. that narrative, right, that helps them move toward a sense of wholeness and healing of whatever wound that has brought them to counseling. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so even in this post, in this modern, postmodernist thought of individualism, what my experience has shown me through theater and in counseling, people heal when they connect to something outside of themselves and they feel a sense of belonging and connectedness. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We well, can go a long way with that. There's, there's so much to be done and yeah. so many ways we could, we could dive into that. Um, one, one, I guess paradigm. This is—I uh, don't know if this is too simplistic, but 
one uh, comparative paradigm that I've seen for looking at ways of understanding counseling is is between a pathology-based approach or a strength-based approach mm-hmm. to, to counseling, to growth, to restoration, to healing. Could, could you compare those two? What, what's the difference or the relationship between those two approaches, a pathology-based approach or a strength-based approach? Sure. And really, Don, we've already been talking about it as we've talked about this idea of individualism and then connecting one's narrative to some external source, whatever that happens to be. So when we think, um, so I won't go into the minutiae, right, uh, as far as theorists and all that, but pathology-based counseling is really, we can think of it as the medical model when we've identified a set of criteria, behavior abnormalities, that um, in counseling, we focus on the abnormal behavior pathology of the mind um, throughout the counseling process. And so the, the, it becomes almost as if uh, a person is ill, right? And we are trying to help them, um, heal their illness but you start with the assumption of illness right we do because most people come to counseling because something is not going the way they would like so there there is some sort of problem that they want to resolve but a problem in pathology i will say is not synonymous pathology is right so pathology the way we look at it is in counseling is something based on an external set of criteria that says that person, the way that person thinks, feels, and behaves is abnormal compared to the rest of, or compared to your typical person. Okay. Right? And so, um, like depression is considered a psychopathology because there's a thought that most people are not so sad and depressed that they don't eat, they may sleep, they may not, they don't sleep too much or too little, uh, they can maintain their daily functioning, right? And so the pathology of depression suggests that a person's sadness impairs their functioning so much that they are unable to engage in life the way okay. it's person was. So that's how we think of pathology. Where strength-based counseling is this idea of focusing on what a person, the resources, the abilities a person does have. So for someone, again, to use that same depression, depressive um, idea, a person with depression. So even though a person, while a person, I'll say it that way, while a person has depression, they still may have um, the capacity to think, maybe not in the most affirming ways, right, about life, but you could still say they can still think about what's happening in their life right now. Um, and Or you might say they can still make it to work, though their quality of their work is poor, they can get up and make it to work. Right. And so so the strength based approach in counseling is looking at the capabilities of a person, what they can do and what they have the potential to do. So um, 
still using, again, the, the concept of a person with depression, that person can still have values and beliefs that are strength-based. So again, they may have a, a faith, um, whether it's Christian or something else, they um, may have values of honesty and forgiveness, right? That we could draw on as well to include in the counseling process um, to help them again, feel better, heal, restore them back to that a more, a more productive level of functioning. Okay. So uh, for those, and I think this would probably be many, if not most of our listeners who are not in um, therapeutic ministries professionally, they're not, you know, they don't have the clinical training, but we all want to, you know, come alongside friends and other people as we have opportunity. How, how, how does this distill into what, what would, what advice would you give to, you know, the average person um, for how they come along to other, other people who may be struggling, uh, you know, you know, based on this either pathology or strength-based approach? Well, that's a really good question because I encourage us to notice both. So it is typical, just like we, uh, we, we acknowledge that we are sinners saved by grace, right? So, and so a person, when we come alongside a person who might, um, and we think about pathology and strength, is that the, the person does have both. And how do we come alongside of them? And we notice, yes, there is a problem. And we can still notice and help them notice their potential. So yeah, you're having a hard time getting out of bed. But I'm so glad you answered the phone. Okay. <laughs> so, right? I'm yeah. so glad. Take, take, a, you, take a win where you have it, right? Right, right, that you answered the phone today. Because I know I can acknowledge that probably was hard for you, and you did it anyway. What? Hmm. And ask the question, what happened? What What made you, what, what encouraged you to answer the phone? And it could be as simple as that person saying, well, it rang. Well, again, depending upon how we see the world, I would say you were wise enough to notice that the phone rang and you accepted the challenge to answer it. Yeah, you had the wherewithal to get up and do it, right? (laughs) Right. Even as, and I don't like to use despite, right? Because when I hear despite, it kind of negates the problem. Okay. So I like to say even as you are struggling because- I'm going to connect this really quick because really what when we define resilience, even when we look at it biblically, it is about knowing that life is hard. And sometimes Christians, we don't like to say that. (laughs) Life can be hard. Um, There are lots of adversity that comes with living. Yet what resilience has taught us is that we have the capacity to recover daily from the adversities that happen in our lives. Yeah, that surprises a lot of us. I think when we when we realize, and, and we we can still give uh, give thanks, give full credit to God for what God has given us. But what it surprises us when we find out that God has implanted, embedded in our lives resources and aptitudes and and strengths that we really don't know we have until we get in some kind of a desperate situation and have to draw upon those and find out how deep the well really is. 
really, really how, and, and for some people that is daily, right? It is is a daily um, process of adversity and recovery to make it through life. And that, I mean, that can be as some things, well, as self-control, right? As um, asking for help, as noticing what you are, a person is thinking and feeling. Um, so re- being able to uh, tell someone, like, so effective communication, it can look like resilience is a very broad field. Um, but what we don't say it is when we think about this idea of pathology and strength-based, what we don't say is resilience is picking your, your um, as we say, yourself up by your bootstrap. Right. That's not what it is. And it's really not about being resistant to harm, because as human beings and we interact with one another, we're going to get hurt. Yeah, Um, we just are. And so um, what this so the balance to answer your question, it's really knowing that both exist simultaneously. Pathology and strength go hand in hand Mm. in a person's life. Um, and when we are able to notice both, um, we have an opportunity to choose how we will respond and live. Yeah. Well, I, you know, if we put this in, in some theological language, um, we, we can see that the, the pathologies, the brokenness, the problems, um, so many things that, that wear our lives down are uh, the sort of cascading effects of the fall in human life and in the world, and mm-hmm. and it, I mean those are real those are real things. They're not imaginary, and they affect everybody in many different ways and to some extent. And at the same time, the grace of God, the commitment of God toward redemption, is a reality that um, that, that is more powerful than the effects of the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the grace of God takes a lot of forms. Yes. And and I think that's where this idea of imagination in counseling comes into play. Um, and in this idea of how when we we have an opportunity to imagine how we can live our lives and then move toward that imagination. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah that, the way that, you feel and act. That, that's a that's a beautiful, graceful experience. Very graceful. <laughs> and, and I have seen Don people heal from that experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've had conversations recently about the the, the kind of healing, therapeutic, even redemptive capacity of, of art and beauty, the aesthetic dimension, the experiential dimension of life where things that often don't make sense to us at a, at a formal, rational level uh, can begin to find a, a place um, once those are superseded by really powerful experiences of beauty or good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. There's um, healing properties there. Yes, and, and if, and I'll say if, in that... Um, this and this is tricky because unlike our physical body where we are designed to heal often sometimes without external intervention right and so we get cut 
we may or not may or may or may may or may not have to put something on that cut for it to heal right right whereas when we when we think about uh our desire for emotional or psychological healing um there there it doesn't happen by accident <laughs> there there must i believe um and much of the counseling research supports this, there must be an internal desire for the turmoil that happens inside of us to quiet and cease. Mm. We've got to want it. It's not going to happen like magically or automatically? Is that what no, you're saying? No, it doesn't happen magically or automatically. Um, like if we get a cut, it just it just doesn't. Yet when it happens, for many the people that I've worked with are doing different types of therapies, it is it's still magical because oftentimes people think that they have that problem, that wound, that emotional wound, they feel like they're stuck with it and okay. they can't get rid of it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, magical in that sense that they, they thought they were hopeless. They were helpless. Yeah. Um, they were, and I'll use the word victim, right, to the problem, and that there was no relief. Yeah. That was available to them. Um, admittedly, uh, I've seen it more in my clients who do have a faith-based, often Christian, that experience. And I'm going to call it miraculous, that miraculous healing. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, God is certainly involved. I, w- I think so. Yeah. Even for my clients who don't believe, um, I, uh, they know I'm a Christian, and so I don't hide that. <laughs> and so um, they, uh, they are still, op- many of them are still open to knowing. I don't pray for them in, in session because that's not what they want, but knowing um, that I am I am a believer, and they find comfort in that, even my non-believing clients, which um, also speaks to, I think, God's grace. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you something about how you've seen the redemptive power of the gospel at work in people's lives from a, uh, you know, in, in ways that the broader therapeutic culture might not be able to account for, and you're, you're kind of answering that, that there is something about um, God's healing activity in people's lives that is hard to map or predict um, and and yet it comes in rather undeniable ways that that God is involved and sometimes people pay attention to that and I think that's also part of what I was um, alluding to a moment ago when I mentioned this idea of an internal desire for healing okay Um, and so I think it's a combination of I'll say it, the Lord working through me, right? Yeah, Holy, yeah. Holy Spirit working through me. Um, and then clients having a desire to allow the Lord to heal them. Okay. So, I, And so what comes to my mind is, and so I, even with that, um, the I think of Naaman, right? And how he didn't want to go initially wash into the Jordan, right? And he was like, well, I thought you were going to do this and this and this. <laughs> and so yeah. I think the same thing happens in counseling. People come expecting for the counselor to wave some magical wand 
um, when really the relationship that the counselor and the client are able to develop, as well as what the client brings to the counseling experience and their desire for restoration, for healing, uh, are the things that allow for healing to occur. Okay. That yeah, that in a in a sense that's what opens them to the the graceful, grace filled healing resources that God is is wanting to bring everybody's way. And exactly. sometimes we're open to it and sometimes we're not. And and on to the point we were talking about earlier, it increases their capacity to imagine something different. Yeah, I love that connection. Love that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and to build a new na- a narrative that um, better aligns with who they th- who they thought they were, because it's usually who who they thought they were, okay. right? who they want to be now, um, and who they they dreamed that they could be, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's really helping that idea. Uh, and I I'll admit I I love it when the Lord is a person is willing to allow the Lord to be explicit, right? In yeah. Their line. Yeah. Um, yeah. Michelle. Um, you've you have considerable experience in uh, across cultures that you mentioned earlier in Ukraine, and I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've learned from those cross cultural experiences about how how people heal when they are hurt or damaged. You know, may, there's probably a lot that's in common because people are people, and yet um, you know, culture does does a shape or. Uh, interpret some of the ways in which our our damages ex- our hurt our our wounds are experienced. Yeah, uh, do you have any reflections on that? I do. So I, I think what I'll share as a is when I think about my work in Ukraine as an African American U.S. citizen, right? <laughs> Going to um, a former Soviet country. Yeah. Uh, where there there is a population of Black Ukrainians, right? So I need to say that. Huh. And that was something that I was curious about when I got there. Okay. Um, but what really I noticed about the differences is, one, I think the, how the wounds are created. Um, I think the, they still create divisiveness versus both internally and externally, okay. right? So, but I think how how people choose to divide and wound each other. Huh. Um, and so, what I noticed in Ukraine, the biggest how the wounds are uh, were uh, inflicted. I'll use that term. Were based on language, um, were and based on allegiances. With certain groups of people, like tribalism, nationalism, uh, or or what? All the above. Okay. <laughs> Based on um, nationalism, whether uh, a Ukrainian citizen uh, spoke Russian or Ukrainian, whether they aligned with Russia, uh, that federation, or they were a nationalist, Ukrainian nationalist. Okay. Um, whether they lived in a particular region of the country. Uh, matter versus others, um, 
whether they were in a rural versus urban area seemed to matter uh, on how they they treated one another uh, Hmm. there. Uh, Whereas in the United States, regardless of popular opinion, divisiveness is typically looked at of race and ethnicity. Yes, country of origin for people who are not um, often U.S. citizens or they are, were not born here. And then social political divisiveness, right. um, which I think are similar between the U.S. and Ukraine. Um, I think uh, how people heal from those wounds, however, seem quite similar. Uh, in this process of um, awareness. And when I use the term acceptance, I don't mean acceptance of of the the wound. I mean acceptance that it that um, and I'm gonna say it this way, that the wound is not something I can heal on my own. I, I have to contribute to the healing, but I can't do it by myself. And so the process of healing becomes internal yet external, meaning, as I mentioned before, connecting to yeah. <laughs> something outside of that person, whether it's yeah. a community, whether it's faith, whether it's a cause um, that directly advocates for or against the wound that the person has experienced um, or whether it becomes in this instance um, when I think about Ukraine and the work that I do there becoming a part of the group of people who actually uh, become our helpers to help those who are wounded yeah okay um, okay well you're you're reinforcing something that I've felt for a long time, which is that relational wounds, relationally inflicted wounds are always healed relationally. They're not healed in isolation. Mm-hmm. And that's what the research suggests. Oh, don't get me started. So. Ah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad there's research behind what I was intuiting. <laughs> and, and one of my, one of my favorite researchers talks about social support and several of them actually and the importance of being connected to community yeah in good and bad times and the and i can use the word redemptive the redemptive power of of supportive relationships yeah Um, yeah wow that's really encouraging michelle and just one final question for you as we wrap this up from from your experience and your training, are there a couple of tips um, or suggestions you would want to leave with those who are are not professionally trained counselors as they try to come alongside hurting people in a helpful manner? Yeah, um, I think the the first tip that I that uh, comes to mind is to not expect the person to behave the way you would. Hmm. Not to do it your way Um, in that uh, just because you could get out of bed anyway, (laughs) doesn't mean that that person can. So that's the first one to honor where the person, a person is in their process. 
right? So that's the first one. Yeah. Um, and, and so the second part of that is, and by honoring, I mean, don't expect for them to do it your way. Mm-hmm. And I think the other tip that I would give is to be consistently open to opportunities of change. So by that, I mean, all attempt to notice when that person leans into their strength unexpectedly. (laughs) So the example again is the telephone, right? And I'm using depression because depression and anxiety are the most common mental health conditions. All right. and there happen to be the ones that I specialize in. So, and so when when someone who is depressed can answer the phone, that is an un, that's an opportunity to lean into that person's strength. Okay. Right. And so thank them for doing it anyway. And ask, you know, was there did they have any other plans for the day? And they might surprise you. Um And then I think the last one, if I may, uh, is is to be patient Um, because the journey to healing sometimes is slower than we would like. Mm. Um, Yeah. Well, there's, there's just all kinds of biblical examples of that that come to my mind, you know, when we think about the Lord being patient with us, wanting all to come to repentance, that that kind of notion. And um, the the theme of encouragement, mm-hmm. um, encouragement that uh, focuses on what God is already doing in our lives that we might be blind to, might not be able to see, but somebody else has to point that out to us. And we begin to see God at work in us in ways that we uh, we were we were not tapped into those and not paying attention to those. Mm. So anyway, yeah, this has been so encouraging, Michelle. Thank you for uh, just sharing your your wisdom and your training and your experiences with us. They're they're all over the map, and I love the way you brought them together in ways that the Lord is is using them, using you uh, so powerfully to encourage and and be restorative in people's lives. And I'm excited for our students and and our listeners. To, uh, to learn and benefit from what you're what you're bringing to all of this. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. This is great. Um, We've been talking to Dr. Michelle Temple, a member of our counseling faculty here at Denver Seminary. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Dr. Temple, you can find her biography on our website. You find a lot of other resources there as well. So I'd encourage you to visit our website, denverseminary.edu. And if you want to communicate with us at the podcast, you can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. We would love to hear from you. Um, Thank you for uh, spending a little time with us. And thank you again, Michelle, for your time. And we hope you'll be back with with us again soon, Uh, uh, both you, Michelle, and and everybody who's listening to this. uh, We'd love to hear uh, from you in terms of how we can maybe pray for you or Uh, how you're benefiting from anything you're hearing or experiencing from us at Denver Seminary. Please communicate with us. Until then, until next time, uh, my name is Don Payne, and I'm honored to be your host and look forward to another conversation with you really soon. Take care.